Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at a small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. And currently, I am in a longer series on turn-of-the-century black writers. I have looked at Charles W. Chestnut, and right now we're taking a look at the writings of W.E.B. Du Bois, and then following this, we'll be taking a look at James Weldon Johnson and a couple of his books and some of his essays and poems even. I think those would be the first poems in this this series. Um, but anyways, right now we're still looking at W.E.B. Du Bois's works. We started with his PhD dissertation, The Suppression of the Slave Trade. Then we looked at The Souls of Black Folk and then his autobiography and collection of essays, Dusk of Dawn. And since then, we've been taking a look at a collection of his essays. Um, now, this W.B. Du Bois anthology, you know, I, I complained before that one of its faults was its lack of black reconstruction in America. But that's such a long work. And... I, in a sense, I understand that would almost be a whole volume on its own if they were to include it. Uh, and they do represent it a little bit in this collection of essays. This collection of essays, here's what I want to say. This collection of essays on 300 pages is such a great representation of the major themes of Du Bois's career, the major debates he was a part of, whether it was education or uh, Afrocentrism or even his association with the Communist Party and the troubles he ran into in the 1950s, his leadership of the NAACP and the crisis. You got some of his personal issues, his views on history. It's really well represented here in a collection of, of probably less than 30, 30 short essays. So this is almost worth the price of admission right here, this, this collection. Um, so in the first set of essays we looked at that really covered the period up to World War One, and it focused really on on education. The second set of essays covers mostly the 1920s and that that dealt with a little bit of his Pan-African thought or I should say Afrocentrist thought but he has some Pan-Africanism too obviously. His view of of kind of whiteness, and, I, and I, I made an argument that he's making a contribution here to what we now call whiteness studies, which is the effort to try to look at whiteness as a race, not just blackness, not just other, not just the racial others having a race, but um, white people also having a race. A little bit about his views on art, a little bit more about his uh, perspectives on education, and then his response to the Marcus Garvey movement in the UNAA. So that, that kind of covered the 20s. And the essays we're going to look at today are, are more of a mixed bag because they cover a broader swath of time. It, it really goes from the 1930s all the way to the end of his life. And I would say there's, there's a couple of main important things we need to look at. One is this massive book. It's just, it's just a behemoth of a text. It's, it's one of the masterpieces of American history, Black Reconstruction in America. And we have one part of it here, the propaganda of history, one of the most important chapters in that in that book. We have a little bit more here on education in the revelation of St. Oregon 
Orgne the Damned, which was a commencement address, and we've already seen one of his. And it's it covers some of the same ground that Dubois covered in essays on education, but it does it in a in an allegorical way. I don't know if the allegory totally works, but you know he he, he does that there. Then we have some of his response to McCarthyism, his involvement in the peace movement of the 1950s, his interest in global institutions, and his association with communism and how that ran into trouble. And that's two, two essays called The Trial and the Acquittal. And then we have kind of his end-of-life reflections, and there are, there are three of those. Um, you know, stuff he was writing in the 60s when he was, you know, 90 years old. So, but, um, so we left off with an essay called The Negro College, published in The Crisis in August of 1933. The next one was also published in The Crisis in 1933, and it's called On Being Ashamed of Oneself an essay in race pride. This essay is, is about the necessity of racial pride. And it's, it's an argument for black people asserting themselves on their own terms. And it kind of goes back to the theme of double consciousness, right? That black people are always seeing themselves as you know, you know, subjectively, but then also seeing themselves as white people or how white civilization sees them, right, as, as a problem. That's how he puts it in, in the souls of black folk. And then you have to get past that. And, of course, his means for getting past that in large part is education. But here he makes a case for, for racial pride of being one way of, of counteracting the negative imagery of black America that comes from the dominant narrative uh, being uh, displayed across the nation and across the intellectual climate, across politics, and, you know, by the those people in power. And more importantly, not just in power, but able to control the narrative of, of, of what black people are, in America are about, right? So again, this has a on being ashamed of oneself. So he starts with this point that of, of shame, and where does this come from? And there's a couple of things involved in this. Part of it's poverty, lack of education, uh, suppressed potential and and then you have of course the whole infrastructure of Jim Crow he says the quote the situation is this America in denying equality of rights of employment and social recognition to American Negroes has said in the past that the Negro was so far below the average nation in social position that he could not be recognized until he had developed further in the answer of this the Negro has eliminated five-sixths of his illiteracy according to official figures and greatly increased the number of colored persons who have received education of the higher source they still are poor with large numbers of delinquents and dependents. Nevertheless, with average situation in this respect has been greatly improved. And on the other hand, the emergence and accomplishment of colored men of ability has been undoubted. Notwithstanding this, Negro is still a group apart, with almost no social recognition, subject to insult and discrimination, with income and wage far below the average of the nation, and the most deliberately exploited industrial class in America. Even trained Negroes have increasing difficulty in making a living sufficient to sustain a civilized standard of life. Particularly in this recent past, economic changes, color discrimination, as it now goes on, is going to make it increasingly difficult for the Negro to remain an integral part of the industrial machine or to increase his participation in accordance with his ability. So it's, and this is the root cause of it then, is, is this being otherized by, by the United States as a whole, right? White supremacy. But of course, his point also, and it's in the same passage, is that there's much to be proud about. And there's a foundation for a reinterpretation, a self-reinterpretation of where black people are. And he's writing this in 1930. 
of course. And so most of the essay actually is about this, this narrative of progress. So and he thinks this is a sufficient foundation for a kind of renewed racial pride. The problem you might get from this is it seems to suggest that lacking the state of uplift and education and wealth and the other things he points out, was there a sufficient grounds for accepting the white narrative? You know, but of course, Du Bois doesn't think that. He knows very well, and he's articulated in many of his other essays and throughout what we've been looking at, that this has all been a result of the legacy of slavery and disempowerment. So this being shamed of oneself was an internalization of things that were done to these, these people. Now, he's mentioned in a couple essays at this point, specifically in So the Girl Marries, where he was talking about marriage and the choice not to have kids. He mentioned the term race suicide, and he does it again in this essay. And I don't know if it's mentioned at other times in these essays by Du Bois, but it's something that's apparently on his mind in the early 30s is the is the question of, of race suicide. And one solution. Now, what did that mean exactly? I, I think he never quite defines it. Does it mean this choice not to have kids? Does it? Uh, is it is it one constant? Is it, maybe he's responding a bit to what you saw, like in the the Harlem Renaissance is this fascination with with lighter skin, right? So there's kind of a, we don't have pride in ourselves, so we try to be closer to white people. I don't quite know where it's coming from, but certainly whatever it is, race suicide is juxtaposed oppositely with race pride. And so I think he's, his, he prefers racial pride as a, as a better response to white supremacy than, than ennui and, and what he calls race suicide. And why is this important? Well, it's important because it's it's one of the only ways out. He says at the end of the essay that American Negroes will be beaten into submission and degradation if they merely wait unorganized to find some place voluntarily given to them in the new reconstruction of the economic world. They must themselves force their race into the new economic setup and bring with them the millions of West Indians and Africans by peaceful organization for normative action or else drift into greater poverty, greater crime, greater helplessness until there is no resort but the last red alternative of revolt, revenge, and war. That's 1933. By the 1950s, he's, I think he's a Communist Party member. So I guess he took that turn to Red Revolt at some point in his life. Let me, let me quickly look up when he joined the, the party. Oh, geez, he didn't join until the 60s, till 1961. So it was quite late. But he, he did have sympathies with the communists in the... Especially you see this in some of the essays we're going to look at later today. The ones from the, the 50s. So anyways, that, that's a short little essay. It, it's really more of a kind of an editorial piece in, in the crisis from September of 1933. He doesn't say much about the Depression. And, you know, I, I wonder if in his view, you know, the Depression doesn't really make things that much worse economically. They were, they were already in pretty bad straits. And black people were, were sort of in a prolonged economic depression throughout early 20th century America. Uh maybe ex exception given to those who, who participated in the Great Migration and got to take advantage of industrial work in the North. But even then, they tended to be paid less. They tended to be the first fired, the last hired. And so maybe there wasn't as abrupt a change for black people as there was for whites um, with, with when the Depression hit. But he doesn't really reference the Depression too much in these essays. So next we have propaganda, the propaganda of history. 1935, and this is 
a chapter, I think it's the last chapter of Black Reconstruction in America. So I have the whole book here right in front of me. It's the whole title, Black Reconstruction in America, 1860 to 1880. Um, this is the first book looking at what black people did in Reconstruction. It's, it's so commonplace now for historians to see Reconstruction as a revolution in which freed, freed men and women were major participants in making new institutions, in participating in politics, forming political parties, forming social organizations, forming schools, forming alliances with poor whites to maintain political control, uh, forming militias to protect ones, protect themselves, having a vision of of a very alternative world, right? And so, in some of the Republican governments during Reconstruction, you had the foundation of a welfare state established, governments helping people get loans to buy land, establishing public schools, on and on, right? And then what happens then is, as most students of history of American history now know is a combination of a resurgent Democratic Party, a lack of will to really sustain Reconstruction in the North, and growing racial violence is a huge part of this. It new organizations, most predominantly the Ku Klux Klan, which also had groups like the White League, organized to suppress the Republican Party in the South and to suppress Black activism and to suppress these institutions. And upwardly mobile African Americans were targeted, in particular, by these these groups um, I don't think this book itself well actually it does so the chapter is called the counter-revolution of property and it seems he does talk about vigilante violence here this isn't though the first time Du Bois talked about reconstruction the first time he did that was actually back in as far as I know the back in 1903 with souls of black folks some of the early chapters deal with the potential of Reconstruction and the failures of Reconstruction, especially is focusing on the Freedmen's Bureau and its participation in reconstructing black life after slavery. Well, I've got some heavy rain here, so I'm going to sign off for a bit and come back and finish talking about uh, these essays. Well, I'm back. The rain has slowed down, so it won't be in the background. Um, yeah, so we're talking about Black Reconstruction in America, Du Bois's wonderful book, maybe with the exception of the souls of black folk, maybe his best work. Another thing that Du Bois does in Black Reconstruction in America, except by beyond talking about just how central black activism was to the creation of of the New South, and looking at this really as a repressed and suppressed revolution, is his interpretation of the end of slavery. I think uh, at the time in the 19, 18th, 1930, sorry, 1930s, you still had the historical vision of Abraham Lincoln as the great emancipator. And I don't want to belittle that interpretation. I don't think even Du Bois necessarily wants to do that. But, you know, it wasn't just Lincoln signing the Emancipation Proclamation or just General Grant or General Sherman that brought down slavery in the South. It wasn't just the winning of the war. It was activism by enslaved men and women themselves about a quarter of all slaves in the South ran away at some point during the, the war. Many, tens of thousands, served in the military to help put down the rebellion. And Du Bois, I don't know if this is the first person to interpret it this way, but I think it might be. 
he calls it a general strike. That's actually chapter four of Black Reconstruction in America is a chapter called The General Strike. And here's how he, he gives a subtitle to that. How the Civil War meant emancipation and how the black worker won the war by a general strike, which transformed his labor from the Confederate planter to the northern invader and in whose army lines workers began to organize as a new labor force. So this mass resistance by enslaved men and women, he's interpreting as a general strike and that shattered the southern economy and emboldened and empowered the northern economy and the northern military effort giving him the capacity to win the war. And that's that's central to his interpretation as well. So anyways, I can't recommend this book enough. I, I think, of course, you can read Eric Foner and you can read the Library of America's new book on Reconstruction. I haven't got a hand hold of that yet. Um, but I may review that when I start looking at their Civil War books. I, I may look at those. I think there's five or six books, uh, documents of the Civil War, and then, uh, then one on Reconstruction. I will probably get to that at some point, but... Uh, for now, all I can do is really recommend that you read Black Reconstruction in America. Now, the thing we have in this anthology of Du Bois's writing is just one chapter from Black Reconstruction in America, and that is the chapter called The Propaganda of History. And this kind of pairs nicely with his essay on the criteria of Negro art, because there he argues that essentially art should be propaganda. The goal of art is to not just tell the truth. In a perfect world, art should just tell the talk about beauty and and tell the truth but in the context of white supremacy and in this you know the need to create more opportunities and to challenge white supremacy by black people themselves you need art to play a role in that struggle and that that's what Du Bois thinks and he was somewhat critical of some of Harlem Renaissance writing for in a sense telling the truth he he, he was bothered that so many black writers were, were kind of showing the dark side or some of the negative aspects of black life. Now, of course, the artists would say this is just truth. We're showing the complexity of, of African-American living. And you can go back to listen to my series on the Harlem Renaissance, where I talk a little bit about this debate between, I think it's Du Bois and Elaine Locke on one side and, and some other writers kind of say, no, we need to be as truthful as possible. And Du Bois says no. Um, now, why is that relevant to this this book, Black Reconstruction in America? Well, he makes a case that I think most historians now know, and that is history is essentially propaganda. Historians, of course, do their best to understand the past and have evidence and support their arguments. But at the end of the day, the arguments they make are shaped by their own politics and their own point of view. And history is a story we tell to ourselves to frame the past in ways that serve us politically or in our own struggles you know and that that's just sort of the way it is it doesn't mean the history is wrong or bad it just means it's being it's being applied to service contemporary struggles right I, I mean i come from the like the labor history tradition and it's certainly pretty apparent that people who advocate labor history they're not doing it because they think you know, labor history is, the, you know, the most important story to tell necessarily or all that really matters about history or that that like the history from the business point of view doesn't exist. You know, they realize that those stories are there, but historians are trying to craft narratives out of out of this massive amount of evidence. And they often use small amounts of evidence and tell small stories in a bigger context. And they're doing that to usually push 
something that they think is valuable, often related to contemporary struggles, right? So when we talk about the growth of the labor movement, in a historical perspective, we're often doing it in a way to support contemporary drives or to point out the benefits of joining unions. In a sense, it becomes propaganda. It's not always very effective, I have to say, but, you know, that's that it's there. So now Du Bois' book then, Black Reconstruction in America, is propaganda. Now, I don't know if he goes that far, but it's certainly a subtext of this essay that he is also writing propaganda. But his problem is all of the writing about Reconstruction up to that point, up to 1936, has been propaganda of the other type, propaganda supporting white supremacy. And he, he points out three basic assumptions tied to all interpretations of Reconstruction up to that point. And, and if you want to know, it's the Dunning School of Reconstruction history, the dominant school of thought at the turn of the last century. <clears throat> but the three things were, quote, one, all Negroes were ignorant, two, all Negroes were lazy, dishonest, dishonest and extravagant, and three, Negroes were responsible for bad government during Reconstruction. End quote. So that is the heart. So essentially the interpretation of Reconstruction wasn't just a criticism of like carpetbaggers or scalawags or a criticism of of kind of imposing these Republican governments on the South through military force or even a criticism of, of corruption, per se, you know, per se. It's it was a essentially it came down to black people can't rule themselves. They're too stupid to rule themselves and therefore when they did that, disastrous things happened. So essentially, it reinforced racial hierarchies through history. In that sense, history becomes propaganda for, for white supremacy. He's able to point to some early statements about Reconstruction written at the time that acknowledged how important black people were to the, the potential of Reconstruction and its visions and its creativity, even quoting Lincoln at one point. But it was really Dunning that he blames for for a change and this kind of turn. Now, his name is William A. Dunning. He's actually from New Jersey, so he's not a, he wasn't a Southerner. There's another guy I mentioned here too, John W. Burgess, who was a Southerner and an ex-Confederate. But these two writers together, it gets called the Dunning School, but Du Bois seems to think that this Burgess was also very important to this. Maybe because Dunning was a Northerner and less overtly racist and he was basically a better historian in the sense of putting on the airs of objectivity that they defined the the major narrative of reconstruction as one of corruption of failure of bad government right and that so it somehow justifies then the redemption and redemption of course was affected in large part through racial violence and vigilantism and the kkk and all that so by it almost gives cover for those white supremacist movements and that's the problem with that Dunning's interpretation of history. Not even that it, that it suppresses the real potential and vision that Reconstruction governments, you know, ex, you know, to try to push for. And in doing so, really created a new South with limited political imagination. And part largely that's because black voters were the vote was taken away from black voters by by the early 20th century. So he goes on and he talks about essentially the, early, the historiography of Reconstruction up to that point, showing how it all tends to reinforce white supremacist narratives. But the ending, the ending of this book, and we have it here, is so wonderful in that Du Bois is able to take this experience of black people after slavery and connect it 
back to the story of of global capitalism and the global proletariat and it, it's actually quite effectively done let me just read the last page or so of of this essay which is really the last page of the book Quote, the most magnificent drama in the last thousand years of human history is the transportation of 10 million human beings out of the dark beauty of their mother continent into the newfound El Dorado of the West. They descended into hell, and in the third century they arose from the dead in their finest effort to achieve democracy for the working millions which this world has ever seen. It was a tragedy that begaggered the Greeks. It was an upheaval of humanity like the Reformation and the French Revolution. Yet we are blind and led by the blind. We discern in no part of our labor movement. No part of our industrial triumph, no part of our religious experience. Before the dumb eyes of 10 generations, of 10 million children, it is made mockery of and spit upon a degradation of the eternal mother, a snare at human effort with aspiration and art deliberately and elaborately distorted. And why? Because in a day when the human mind aspired to a science of human action, a history and psychology of the mighty effort of the mightiest century, we fell under the leadership of those who would compromise with truth in the past in order to make peace with the present and guide policy in the future. One reads with true, with true deeper facts of reconstruction with a greater despair. It is once so simple and human and yet so futile. There is no villain, no idiot, no saint. They are just men, men who crave ease and power, men who know want and hunger, men who have crawled. They all dream and strive with ecstasy and fear and strain of effort, balked ab hope and hate. Yet the rich world is wide enough for all, wants all, needs all. So slight a gesture, a word might set the strife in order, not with full content, but with growing dawn of fulfillment. Instead roars the crash of hell, and after its whirlwind, a teacher sits in academic halls. Learned in the tradition of its elms and elders, he looks upon the upturned face of youth, and, him, and in him youth sees the gowned shape of the gowned shape of wisdom and hears the voice of God. Cynically, he sneers at chinks and <clears throat> N-word. He says that the nation has changed its views in regard to the political relation of races and has at last virtually accepted the ideas of the South upon the subject. The white men of the South need not have no further fears that the Republican Party or Republican administrations will ever again give themselves over to the vain imagination of the political equality of man. Immediately in Africa, a black black runs red with the blood of the lash. In India, a brown girl's raped. In China, a coolie starves. In Alabama, seven darkies are more than lynched. While in London, the white flames of a prostitute are hung with jewels and the white limbs of a prostitute are hung with jewels and silk. Flames of jealous murder sweep the earth while brains of little children smear the hills. This is education in the 1935th year of Christ. This is modern and exact social science. This is the university course in History 12, set down by the Senatus Academius, ad quoc ha literae pervermiti et salutium in domia scepter ternum. End quote. So what he ends there with a bit of sarcasm uh, about these academic elites imposing a narrative of history that totally supports the ruling system of global empire and exploitation and, 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 and capital. So some really beautiful writing there at the end of Black Reconstruction in America. Um, a really great essay. And a great book. Really, I, can't, I can't praise it enough. So the next essay in this collection. Well, we got another commencement address by Du Bois. And this one's fairly long. 50 pages. It would have taken him like an hour to give this address. I wonder if the students got bored. 
It's it's an allegory called the Revelation of Saint Orga the Damned, and it was given in 1938 at Fisk University. And actually, to be honest, I don't quite understand the necessity of. I mean, why does this guy have to be a saint? I don't know. It's he's a met the metaphor of Saint Orga the Revelation. I guess it's religious because he's damned in the sense black people are damned by white supremacy. And Jim Crow and the revelation is kind of this vision of the future and the way he gets there is through education that's the argument I mean he, so he has a story of this saint organ the damned which is a very loose allegory of black people in America and then he intercuts this with more didactic just conversations on the necessity of education and the duty of educated black people to go out in the world and help you know win this struggle and uplift the race and you know and really win this struggle for equality that's it i mean you can kind of read this without the allegory and get get the point so it's, it's not the most well done i think but it is a significant work it does feed back to other things we've already read from du bois though it's very much like his earlier commencement address on educated what was it called? College-bred Negroes, which was a, a speech given to graduating students about what jobs could be available. That was a much more practical address. This is a little bit more aspirational and poetic, and it's much beautiful, but it, I don't think it covers any significant new ground. That's worth looking at a bit of this. Uh, here's how he begins his didactic portion of, of the speech. Quote, gentlemen are bred and not born. They are trained in childhood and receive manners from those who surround them and not from their blood. Manners make man and they are the essence of good breeding. They have to do with forms of salutation between civilized persons with the care and cleanliness and grooming of the body. They avoid the stink of bodily excretions. They eat their food without offense to others. They know that dirt is matter misplaced and they seek to replace it. The elemental rules of health become to them second nature and their inbred courtesy one to another makes their lives livable and gracious even among the crowds so this is something open to all people it's something that's tied to kind of overall social uplift and manners and propriety and all that but as this saint organ goes through life he finds the limitations of of the world, he gets increasing frustration, and these frustrations include things like poverty, uh, the ignorance of other people, toiling, the the limited opportunities available to him, and he, he experiments in other ways to get out education, on and on, and eventually, he comes to the conclusion that, well, but it's more like he, it's it's kind of like um, I've been to the mountaintop speech in a way, in that same. Oregon it just sort of sees the promised land, I guess. Um, but he tries many different things. So it, it's kind of a metaphor of someone kind of grasping for different solutions to a problem that basically boils down to one of, of exploitation and oppression. Um, so to quote a bit, quote, So St. Oregon preached the world from, of life from Jeremiah, Shakespeare, and Jesus, Confucius, Buddha, and John Brown, and organized a church with a cooperative store in the Sunday school room, with physician, dentist, nurse, and lawyer to help serve and define the con defend the congregation, with a library, nursery school, and regular succession of paid and trained lectures and discussion. They had radio and moving pictures, and out beyond the city, a farm with house and lake. They had a credit union, group of insurance, and building and loan associations. The members paid for this, not by contributions, but by $10 a month. Seven years he served and married a woman not for her hair or color, but for education, good manners, common sense, and health. Together they made a home and begot two strong, intelligent children. 
Looking one in the eyes, Orga suddenly became frightened for the future. He prayed, Oh, let them be free. So soon, so soon, Orga smiled. The, wo the world rolls uh, around its seven of years. It was midsummer and he was sailing upon the sea. He was bound for Africa on a mission of world brotherhood. Behind and waiting were wife and children, home and work. Ahead was the darker world of men, yellow, black, and brown. Dinner was done and the deck empty save for himself. All were within the magnificent saloon, masked with tall vases of roses and lizzies, priceless with tapestry and, and gilding, listening to the great organ that the master played. He knew that behind the storm and above the cloud of evening stars were singing, and he listened to the rhyme of the words, Hear ye, this is freedom of art, which is the beauty of life. So that's kind of the end of the aspiration. Um, aspirational. Oh, by the, the name, if you don't know it. So it's Orgna, O-R-G-N-E, St. Orgna. And that's just an acronym. No, not an acronym, a, an anagram of, of Negro. So it's pretty obviously an, an allegory for this overall struggle. So it, it's actually kind of a beautiful essay and it sums up a lot of his views on education, on uplift, on, on the importance of, of how one presents oneself in public as a representative of, of a race, about the importance of racial pride. He's got a lot here in, again, the global context of oppression that he wants so much for black people to see their own, black people in America to see their own challenges in the perspective of empire not just africa although he puts a lot of focus on that but the west indies or china he talks a lot about kind of solidarity with the struggles of of asian people people in asia also subject to empire so he's really coming to this global perspective and i think this makes it a stronger essay than his other um commencement addresses that we've read because it it is so grandiose and visionary and it's it's beautiful. I, you know, I don't know if it needs the allegory. Actually, if you just cut out those sections, it, it, it still is a very strong speech. Um, it just he gets a little elegant, I guess, and and literary when he when he shifts to the story of of Saint Organ, Orgne the Damned. Okay, so that that's all I'll say about that commencement address. Uh, so next we have a couple joined essays. Now these are both from a book called <clears throat> In Battle for Peace in 1952 and the two chapters are called The Trial and The Acquittal. So they're, they're tied together um, thematically. Okay so it's I think this is a useful book to to look at and I haven't read the whole thing I only read these two essays but I'm, I'm kind of interested in maybe going out and finding the entire book to see what he says because it's about race obviously, but he's got, again, a kind of a, a broader agenda here. And I, it seems to be the peace movement after the war. And of course, you have the rise of nuclear weapons, you have the Cold War, and you have the anti-communist crusade in the United States. All are significant threats to peace. And he's also, he ties this into to race. Now, he's also shifting more and more to to communism openly and that's one reason he gets in trouble and so these two chapters the acquittal and the trial well the trial and then later on the acquittal are about his mccarthy era hearings in which he was investigated and, and put on trial for his basically as, as part of the red scare this is an essay so i'm looking at an essay andrew laneham in the boston review this was written last year when w.e.b du bois was un-american 
So February 1951 was a busy month for W.E.B. Du Bois, who turned 83 and threw himself a huge birthday party to raise funds for African decolonization. He also married his second wife, the leftist writer Shirley Graham, in what the Baltimore Afro-American newspaper called the wedding of the year. He was indicted, arrested, and arraigned in a federal court as an agent of the Soviet Union because he had circulated a petition protesting nuclear weapons. The Justice Department saw Du Bois' petition as a threat to national security. They thought it was communist propaganda meant to encourage American pacifism in the face of Soviet aggression. They put Du Bois on trial in order to brand him un-American, to use the language of Joe McCarthy's House Un-American Activities Committee. Du Bois was in fact not a Soviet agent, he was an American citizen using his First Amendment rights to protest nuclear weapons for his own behalf, on his own behalf. The federal judge acquitted him because prosecutors failed to present any evidence. Nevertheless, the trial and the publicity around it nearly ruined his career. So that happening, then he wrote this in Battle for Peace, in part to talk about his movement against nuclear weapons, the ongoing struggle for racial justice, and his relationship with communism is certainly going to be a part of this. And then his experience in this, this trial covers these two chapters. So if you want to know about Du Bois's point of view on his time before the House Un-American Activities Committee. These are the chapters you'd want to go to. It doesn't have this dramatic moment where he stands up before uh, his judge and, and speaks the truth. It, it's more about how he feels he was the victim of essentially a witch hunt, how they didn't have any evidence. And, you know, he tries to, you know, place his ideas about the Soviet Union in a particular context that would not make him look like well let's just say he doesn't defend socialism really here it's really about his rights as an American citizen freedom of speech and the this essential relationship of civil liberties to the overall struggle for for peace and he sees his own the prosecution of him as part of a broader system of oppression that's faith that black people are facing but that might might touch on many americans quote but of course this unjustified effort to make five persons register as the source of foreign propaganda for peace and particularly to scare 15 million negroes from compliance from complaint was not the real object of this long and relentless persecution the real object was to prevent american citizens of any sort from daring to think or talk against the determination of big business to reduce Asia to colonial subserviency to American industry, to reweld the chains on Africa, to consolidate United States control of the Caribbean and South America, and above all, to crush socialism in the Soviet Union and China. This was the object in this case. This object every intelligent American knew. Our leading thinkers and educators were perfectly aware of this assault on the basis of the democratic process in America." End quote. Um, so, but what we get here is a little bit of a window into what he sees as the foundation for peace. So that has to be decolonization, some kind of peaceful coexistence with socialism, or maybe even an embrace to some degree of socialism, although he doesn't come out that far, but certainly crushing socialism in Russia can't be the foundation of, of global peace. Uh, but the limiting the power of big business in government, um, removing American hegemony from Latin America and the Caribbean. I mean, some of these issues are still, of course, with us, certainly the control of big business over government, uh, American empire, uh, you know, this this drive of the United States empire to kind of suppress alternative visions. It's still out there. I mean, there's not many alternatives left, and many of them aren't that appealing, but, the, you know, it's still this 
this overall effort to to kind of crush alternatives to global capitalism. Um, it, it's actually these are two two essays though are, are fairly fairly technical, but they inspired me to go and look more closely at Du Bois's the full book by him in Battle for Peace, 1952, just because I, I want to see how he kind of ties all these things together. And more, I, I want to know more about his views on, on nuclear weapons. And so this brings us pretty quickly to the end of this anthology. Uh, the, the last, I guess it's three essays in this book are all written when he's like in his 90s. They're all kind of end of life reflections. The first is called A Vista of 90 Fruitful Years published in the National Guardian in 1958. Now, rather talk, than talking about his, his life history and his 90 years of life, it's, it's no less a memoir than it is a condemnation of the way the world is. He, he criticizes the McCarthy-era um, efforts to suppress American communists. He even talks about Ethel Rosenberg and her death, her execution. He talks about the violence of the world system in defense of in defense of capital and in under the facade of fighting the Cold War. He talks about the continued struggles of Black America. Um, although by this point you have a, a fairly active civil rights movement, so he's able to mention things like the Little Rock um, integration and school integration, but he's not overly optimistic about that. Um, quote, we tax ourselves into poverty and crime so as to make the rich richer and bring more crime and poverty. We know the cause of this. It's to prevent our rich business interests to stop socialism and prevent the ideals of communism from ever triumphing on earth. The aim is impossible. Socialism progresses and will progress. All we can do is silence and jail its promoters. I believe in socialism. I seek a world where the need of communism will triumph to each according to his needs, from each according to his ability. For this I will work as long as I live and I still live. So he comes out supportive of socialism, more so than he actually does in in the trial and the acquittal. I mean, maybe at that age, he just doesn't care anymore. He's, he's just going to say what he wants to think. I mean, especially after he got acquitted in that trial, he really didn't have too much to lose. Uh, then there's a short essay called To an American Born Last Christmas Day, 1958. Now this has, this is kind of the same kind of essay in which, but this time it's framed as a the older man who's lived a century talking to the one who's just been born and kind of leaving him a note. So you get this kind of broad historical point of view, like this is where the world was and this is where it can be and this is your mission then to carry on whatever struggles we began and, you know, you know, push on. And he, he actually talks about struggling for satisfaction in life. And again, I think he, he sees socialism as the key to do this. He targets work and you know, labor as part of a problem early on. Quote, I have, want to stress, I want to stress this. You'll, and you will soon learn, my dear young man, that most human beings spend their life doing work, which they hate and work, which the world does not need. It is therefore of prime importance that you learn early what you want to do, how you are fit to do it and whether or not the world needs this service. You know, try to, the focus on finding meaningful work that's socially relevant and significant. And then later on at the end, income is not greenback, it is satisfaction, it is creation, it is beauty. It is the supreme sense of a world of man going forward, lurch and stagger though you might, but slowly, inevitably going forward. And you, you yourself with your head on the wheels, make this choice then, my son, never hesitate and never falter. Uh, 
and I guess that does it. I, I, I kind of want to put an end to this. There's, in 1968, so 10 years after that essay, we have the publication of the autobiography. Du Bois didn't actually live that long until 1968. He died in 1963, but I guess, I don't know if this autobiography is is just put piece together or was there something he was writing and was unfinished and then some editors put it together. I'm not sure. But the essay is called My Character, and this is a chapter in that book. And that's more of a personal reflection on his past and his development and his views on religion. I think maybe that's the key thing that's important in this essay is he does talk about his his kind of indifference to to religion. And I think that contrasts interestingly with some of the similar or some of his thoughts about religion in the souls of black folk, where he, he sort of talks about understanding black spirituality, you know, in the context of of slavery and, and racial oppression. But here we have a more personal reflection on his his views of, of religion. So anyways, that, that does it for this collection of essays. So if you, these three episodes together where I look at these almost 30 articles and essays, essays really, it's a really good summary, I think, of, of what Du Bois was about in his career and the debates he engaged in at various times. It's, it's actually quite kind of fun to read it because it's a quick read, only 300 pages, but you kind of get this broad panoramic of, <clears throat> of all the, you know, what living that long, all the different kind of controversies and debates and ideas one can have if one is lucky enough to live as long as, as he lived and, and maintain an active mental, mental life throughout that time. So certainly was fortunate in the sense that he was very articulate late in his life. You know, and he was able to to have a voice as long as he did. Pretty much his entire life. I mean, if you contend, you know, his f first speech, Jefferson Davis as a representative of civilization, 1890. And he was writing up to his death in 1963. That's 73 years of active public, you know, proclamations about his ideas. So, you know, I, I actually do hope Library of America puts out another collection of his writing because I think there's enough there in his other works to justify a little bit more you know that's an open-ended collection so who's to say they won't um take my advice and and do that so i guess that does it um next episode i'll finish up with Du Bois. we got about 100 pages of articles from the crisis from 1910 to 1934 which is when he resigns from being an editor of the crisis the crisis by the way i think i've been mentioning the crisis all along and never said what it was this was the organ the newspaper of the NAACP that that he edited for for 20 over 25 years or so so um, he was the main writer and editor and the, the publisher of that that was a big chunk of his career was leadership of that institution the NAACP and that that journal so what we got are almost a hundred 50 to 100 I didn't count them but a lot of short little articles from the crisis so none of them are full essays and many of them are dealing with, you know, many of them are like obituaries. Some of them are like small little snippets, snippets of, of advice, uh, commentary on news and things like that. So I'm not going to go like article or article by article through that, but I am going to kind of talk about the things that maybe we didn't get to talk about in this series up to this point. Things that Du Bois was thinking about or writing about that maybe didn't come up in some of his more major works and the things he's more well known for. So with that, I will go. If you have any your thoughts about Du Bois as you've been reading his works, 
please send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I would love very much to hear from you. If you have any of your comments on McCarthyism, on, on Black Reconstruction in America, please, on, on the politics and the historical debate of Reconstruction, on the politics of history and the propaganda of history. If you have any thoughts about any of that stuff, please um, share them with me. Um, and please subscribe to my channel and my podcast, and I'll keep uploading content on American writers as long as I, I have a will to do so. So again, I thanks, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting the podcast. And I'll be back with my conclusion to my series on W.B. Du Bois next time. Lay this body down